serves. This is Sir Gene with your morning update in the afternoon. I hope you guys have enjoyed the last couple of episodes where I did interviews. I really enjoy doing those. But for now, let's get to a more standard format where I'm going to run through some stories and cover an important topic and certainly offer plenty of opinions in the process as well. In fact, now that it's been a few days, I'd like to get back to the Texas electrical energy situation. As you guys are aware, my power was off a little over three days, all said and done. And it certainly was not a fun experience, but I knew that the weather would eventually warm up. I knew the problems that we were experiencing were directly associated to the cold weather. And so it was really just a matter of time and getting through the immediate discomfort of having below freezing temperatures and being in a house with no electricity. Luckily, we did have natural gas during that time, and I was able to utilize natural gas and cooking on the stove, boiling water, those types of things, in order to get through the experience. And of course, now, as I record this today, it is 83 degrees Fahrenheit outside, which is pretty much the exact opposite. It's a point where the air conditioning has to be running, otherwise it's getting too hot in the house to really handle, and this is still February in Texas. So you can see that we literally went from eight degrees, I believe was our lowest, eight degrees Fahrenheit, and up to 83 degrees Fahrenheit less than seven days later. So uh, very wide range in temperatures this year in Texas. And I suspect this is gonna become more of a common thing in the future as well. And I'll talk more about why I think that in a future episode. That kind of ties into my whole analysis of the climate change that's currently happening that I'm working on, but that won't be out for probably at least another month or so. I've got a lot of work yet to put together that episode. So let's get back to the electrical situation here. Now that data is becoming available, not just for the directly coming out of ERCOT, but also coming from the organizations that ERCOT has to report their data to. Certainly plenty of publications and statements coming out from a variety of sources, including the generators uh, that, or the companies, I should say, that are generating data, or <laughs> data, <laughs> I'm gonna leave this in. Companies that are generating electricity in Texas data is coming in from them now as well. So what is apparent from all this data? What can I really, what conclusions can I draw based on seeing the data? I will say the conclusions are actually very similar to what I was able to ascertain during the power outage, simply looking on my phone, looking at various charts, graphs, and analysis that were happening at the time of the event. But now, of course, there's a wider variety of data and it can certainly be confirmed better as well. It's been validated. Contrary to what most of the newspapers, and certainly contrary to what you see on old school legacy television, which I certainly don't watch, but I've seen examples of clips where they're making fun of people in Texas that are blaming the windmills for what happened. I'm going to start off with the counter argument. So I'm going to start off by saying how I think they got to the decision that they did in that this really wasn't the windmill. So I'll start there and then I'll work my way back and disprove the, that, that assumption. I think the reason that 
a lot of these publications are saying it really wasn't the windmills, Texas. It was the rest of your infrastructure, which is shitty. And certainly the people involved in providing generation and transportation of electricity, not the windmills themselves. And I think the reason they're saying that is because there were still some windmills operational, whether the energy was coming from the windmills themselves or coming from the lithium batteries that are attached to those windmills to provide a buffer for uh, when the windmills themselves are not generating electricity. So certainly the generation from windmills was not at zero. The other factor that is, uh, I think, generating the assertion that, hey, windmills were still working just fine, is that they are comparing the windmill power generated based on a very slim slice of time, essentially the 12-hour period just prior to the ice uh, storm cold front moving in, and then comparing that to the generation of power for the next three days where Texas was mostly below freezing. And if you compare those two, it appears that windmill power, I know I'm saying windmill just like a lot of other people, even though that there are no mills attached to these. These are generators that are being driven, not mills. We're not milling flour. So during this ice storm period, we're producing roughly, I'd say between half and two thirds of the power that they produced in the immediate 12 hour period before the dip in temperatures. And this is very crucial because using that metric, taking a snapshot just half a day prior to the power outage, it does appear, if you compare the generation production, that there was a much smaller dip in electrical production than what actually happened. So right now, if I'm looking at the graph at that immediate 12-hour period, it looks like windmills were responsible for somewhere about seven to 8,000 megawatts, or yeah, seven to 8,000 megawatts or seven to eight gigawatts. And during the cold spell, the windmills peaked at their peak production, were producing between three and four gigawatts. So three or 4,000 megawatts. So the, the drop in windmills was roughly half, potentially even less than half, if they used the, like the last six hours prior to the storm, then the windmills really were only producing about 4,000 gigawatts combined. And they certainly reached that same peak of about 4,000 gigawatts during the, uh, the windiest portions of the freeze as well. So you could argue, if, if you're very careful about your timeline that you use, to say that, look, they were producing 4,000 before the storm. They peaked at 4,000 during the storm. What are you guys talking about? There was no reduction in power. Well, that is a complete manipulation of the facts to suit your current argument. And by manipulating the facts, you could technically be correct in what you say even though you're completely disingenuous and you're completely wrong if you use a different scale, a scale that is much more useful to look at. So the freezing, the, the temperatures in Texas didn't happen until Friday, February 15th. 
But there was certainly a cooling of temperatures in Texas that took place for the entirety of the previous week. So really between February 8th and February 15th, Texas cooled off tremendously. The week prior to the cool down, temperatures went down from about 70 degrees Fahrenheit down to the mid 40s Fahrenheit. So at least a 30 degree change in temperature. The cloudiness also increased. There was more more rain. And if, it, if it's not rain per se, there were certainly plenty of clouds blocking sunshine. And that affected both solar and wind turbines as well. So what could the wind turbines produce prior to the cold temperatures? And now that the Texas has warmed up, like I said, it's in the 80s today, what are the turbines producing right now? Well, let's look at those questions. Now, remember, at peak, the turbines during the frost were doing 4,000 gigawatt, or four, yeah, 4,000 megawatt, four gigawatt. And that's the peak. The average was significantly lower. It was closer to about uh, two gigawatt. On February 8th, windmill power accounted for 20, 24,000 gigawatt, uh, megawatt. So 24 gigawatt. I need to just pick one and stick to it instead of repeating both of them. Sorry, guys. So I'll just use megawatt. 24,000 megawatt. So that is a nice warm day with a lot of sunshine and plenty of wind happening. So at that point, there's 24,000 megawatt of electricity being generated by wind turbines. Now, that's the realistic capability. The theoretical capability is significantly higher. I think it's closer to 35,000 megawatts of power. But let's just say it's the 24,000 that was actually observed on February 8th and days prior to that. Now, right now, the weather's warmer. I think the wind's a little bit lighter. So, for example, yesterday, the generation power of the windmills was, looks like it was about 13,000 megawatt. Is that right? So 40, 30, 20, no, more than that. So, so about 17,000 megawatt. So 17,000 yesterday, 24,000 prior to the storm. These are real numbers coming from the electricity grid and the actual produced amounts. So if you look at a potential of 24,000 megawatts produced and the same wind generators are producing a peak 4,000 during the ice storm with an average of about 2,000, what you're really getting is they were producing at best 20% of the same amount of power that they were producing one week earlier, which means a reduction by 80%. And these are using peak values, not average values. If we use average values, it was actually a reduction of 94% compared to the previous week. Again, this is not using theoreticals. These are using measured production values coming from EIA, which is the U.S. Energy Information Administration. This is where the government gets their figures from. I'm getting them from the exact same place. So at best, 80% reduction. At worst, 94% reduction. I think Ted Cruz said there was a 98% reduction, but he's a politician. He's pushing the bounds even further. So let's just take the best case scenario, 80% reduction, 80% less power being generated than the previous week. And what was the biggest difference between the week of the, of the power outage and the week before that? Well, it was the temperature. It was weather conditions. 
What's the difference between that week and today? Same thing. It is in the 80s today. It was in the 70s yesterday. And it's nice and sunny. And the generation of power from wind turbines is significantly bigger. So what do you have to invent to be able to say that the wind turbines, which decreased at least 80% in their output, were not responsible for the outages that we saw in Texas? Well, other types of power generation are being blamed. Let's look at those really fast. So let's start off with nuclear power. Texas has two nuclear plants, and those two nuclear plants are putting out, I think, about 4,500 megawatt of power. They're very consistent, very solid, 24 hours a day, same exact same thing happening. What was the power output of nuclear at the beginning of the, of the cold weather conditions? 4,500. What was the output of that during the first day of the cold weather condition? Four and a half thousand. What was the output on the second day? Ooh, looks like that dipped and went to 3,200. Why is that? Well, we now know that there was a, a triggered safety event that went one of the power plants, one of the nuclear plants, that happened due to erroneous conditions. So there was nothing actually wrong. There was nothing that was uh, dangerous in the nuclear plant, but there was a trigger that ended up creating a safety warning, which precluded the plant from running at full capacity. And as that investigation took place, the nuclear plant was running at about three quarter capacity. And as soon as that was investigated and established to be a faulty warning that triggered it, on February 18th, the capacity went right back up to the standard 4,500 or so megawatt. So there was a very slight dip in nuclear. So technically you could say, hey, nuclear also had a problem. It did. It may or may not have been related to the weather, but certainly the total output did drop by about 20%. But that's a drop of 20%. The wind power was a drop of 80%. Now, let's look at coal power prior to the the cold weather event. It was running at about, looks like, so a little over 10,000 megawatt. And it, it does go up and down a little bit. I think there's a, a variability to coal power where it's not putting out quite as sustained an output as the, the nuclear power generation is. And so if we look at it, I'm just going to say it's going to be roughly at... I think it's technically over 10, but let's say it's 10,000. This chart gradation, I can't quite tell if it's over. Well, I know it's over 10, but I can't tell if it's 12 or 11. So let's just call it 10. So that went from 10,000 output down to about 6,000 output during the cold weather. And there was a number of reasons for that. And it, so it was probably about a, it was between a 30 and a 35% drop in output that lasted for the most part, the entirety of the power outage. So coal plants were definitely operating at a lower output than prior to the freezing weather. There was a, a number of plants that had gone offline in their conditions. There was a, at least one plant that I'm aware of that was running out of coal supplies because the coal train that delivers coal to it could not get there. So certainly coal plants did go off, but it appears that the plants that were not online, the ones that ended up going offline, were essentially human error. 
these are things that could certainly have been prevented had people actually anticipated the cold weather a little bit better. And I would even go so far as to bet there are procedures already documented and in place that exist, but which were not followed. So coal plants did have some issues, but they were predominantly human error related. Okay, well, let's look at natural gas powered plants. These are This is the single biggest source of power in Texas. The gas uh, natural gas powered plants have an advantage in that they can be spooled up and turned off very quickly. So they can be used to augment other power sources and make up for the difference. Now these plants typically are running at, or well, whether it's half the plants running or whether the plants are running at half power, I've not dug into the specifics of exactly what's going on. My guess is a lot of these plants are simply shut down and are, uh, in standby condition until they're needed, and then they're turned on and spooled up. And so these plants were like during warm weather, so let's say February 8th, at the same time as we had really high output and power coming from from the wind generators. So remember, wind generator was providing 24,000 megawatt. At that time, there was only a need for about 6,000 megawatt coming from a gas, natural gas. So a very small percentage. As the weather cooled off, but still prior to the freeze, for the following week, there were more plants getting turned on. And the output from natural gas actually went all the way up to, let me calculate this real quick. So minus 15. So 43,000 megawatt. So Natural gas went from, what did I say, about 5,000, 6,000 megawatt up to 44,000 megawatt. So more than double of what the wind turbine were producing on its best days. And this is as anticipated, right? This is essentially why there are so many natural gas plants in place is because of the flexibility that they offer. Natural gas is a more expensive way to generate electricity than coal-fired plants because the natural gas plants themselves are smaller and there's less efficiency involved and coal is certainly cheaper. But all said and done, natural gas is what kept Texas warm during the week right up to the big freeze. So during the last day, the week before the freeze, so this would be February 14th, because uh, the uh, temperatures dipped below freezing on the 15th. So on February the 14th, here was the breakdown. So about 5,000 coming from nuclear, about 12,000 or so coming from coal, 42,000 coming from natural gas, and about 4,000 coming from, well, let's be generous. Let's say 6,000 coming from wind turbines. So I'm going to give it the peak value, not the average value here. So 6,000 from from the wind turbines, 44,000 from natural gas. You can see how much more electricity was being generated by natural gas to begin with. And this is the little trick that is being used by the uh, the has-been media, the traditional media, to justify saying, well, it was natural gas that went down. It wasn't the, uh, the wind power that went down because that's what they're using. They're using 
where the wind power was during a cold but non-freezing week already and then comparing that to where wind power was during the freezing weather. And that's where you get the much smaller difference between the two. But remember, just a week prior to that, wind power is generating 24,000 megawatts. So it had already gone from 24,000 to 6,000 by the time the weather was in the 40 degree range. So before the freezing ever hit, the reduction in capabilities of wind power was already showing its face. So how much did the, did the natural gas power go down during the week of frozen weather? Well, it was not insignificant. So remember, it went from 44,000 at the peak and from that, during the, the three days of frozen weather, natural gas generation was at about 30,000. So it dropped about 14,000 megawatts that were being generated. So that, by raw numbers, that was sing absolutely the biggest single dip of any type of, natural, any type of energy source. So a reduction in 14,000 megawatt coming from natural gas a reduction of about 3,500 to 4,000 megawatt in coal, a reduction of two, two and a half thousand megawatt in, no, it wasn't even two and a half. It was really one and a half to 2,000 megawatt coming from nuclear. So the single biggest change in electrical production was absolutely natural gas. But the reason that was the single biggest change was because natural gas already had to be ramped up the previous week to account for the absolute huge drop in production of green energy coming from the windmills, from the wind generators. Damn it, I keep saying windmills. So it is technically true, but absolutely a falsehood to say that the blackouts that were seen in Texas that I was a part of for three days were the result of the failure of natural gas. Yes, natural gas had many issues. Yes, there were problems in transmission of power. There were problems with, not there weren't any problems with gas line transmissions. And that is evident by the fact that I never lost natural gas. Most people that I spoke with that are part of the energy production system here will also say, well, we never really lost natural gas. What happened was Natural gas, the only technical issues with it that were happening were at the connect points. So there is natural gas available. It is coming to the generators that use natural gas. But some of the equipment that those generators, while they were turned off, may have frozen and prevented them from restarting, even though natural gas was available. So those were some issues that certainly did happen. The other issue that happened was natural gas is prioritized for heating. Just like electricity is prioritized for emergency services. So even if your entire block is turned off, the hospital that's a few blocks away from you still has power because it's prioritized over single family homes. The same thing with natural gas, there's a prioritization of providing natural gas for heating over providing natural gas for electricity generation. Now, I'm very happy about that because if I had neither electricity nor natural gas, this would have been a much harder and much more damaging experience that I went through. So natural gas plants certainly experienced some issues, but even through the coldest weather, even through the freezing weather, natural gas 
accounted for over half the electricity produced during that week. And even though there, there were, I think, close to 5 million electrical connections that were offline, and I want to make sure I stress that because, the again, legacy media, the has-beens have been completely mistakenly reporting this as 4.5 million Texans without power, 5 million Texans without power. No, these are not individual numbers. Nobody reports the humans that are associated with the power outages. The only number that is being reported are the number of meters that are not spinning. So this is how many meters are not flowing, how, how many meters there's no electricity flowing through them. So the average household is going to be 2.2 people. And uh, frankly, it's probably more in cities like Austin where there's a high student population and you will have one meter for three to four people that are all living in the same apartment. So really, it was more like 10 million people in Texas were affected by the four and a half thousand meters that were off. And it's a pet peeve because ultimately I don't think anyone really cares other than me, but it is absolutely wrong to say that you have one person per meter because you don't. That is absolutely not the case. And the meters were the only things that there were numbers from. And we know that there were about four and a half thousand meters that were inoperable during those points in time. But that's not to say that the entire state of Texas was turned off. Roughly half the electricity capabilities were still online and providing electricity. It was just based on whoever had the highest number of emergency services that were in the area they were in. I had three friends out of the three friends, two of them still had power, one didn't. And, and by I mean friends here in the within like a three mile area of where I am. So two of us didn't, two others did. And that's pretty pretty similar stat to what you see across the entire map of Texas to where roughly half the people, uh, half the households had power the entire time. And half of us, and I was on the unfortunate side, did not have power the entire rest of the time. There was very little switching going on, unfortunately. So just to wrap up this topic of power outages, natural gas had a few failures, but they did a great job. They were down at most about 27% compared to their capabilities and where they were earlier in the week. The wind turbines were complete horseshit. They were down by a very generous 80% lower than they had been the previous week during warm weather. And potentially, if you really look at the averages, because you don't get wind consistently 24 hours a day, wind power was really down at about 95%. So operating at about 5% of average capacity. Nuclear just, I think, randomly had a blip that normally would not have happened, potentially tied to the cold weather, but we don't know yet at this point exactly what the trigger was but for the most part provided very solid, consistent electrical generation. Coal plants, uh, there was some issues with coal plants, like I mentioned, some relating to uh, delivery of coal, others relating to, well, mechanical issues. These are large coal plants. If they're not run consistently all the time, they will still have issues if the uh, weather changes. They were not planned on being slowed down the way they were, but they were operating pretty good right up until the freeze, but the dip that happened during the freeze was really less than 25%. It was closer to about 20% reduction in coal power electrical generation. So the big loser in all of this is absolutely 
wind power. Now, one little note I will say, something I haven't been talking about, which is solar. And solar provides such a minuscule amount of generation in Texas. You would think Texas is in the south, so why isn't there a lot more solar generation happening? Well, the reality is solar is really expensive. <laughs> and people that have paid for solar roofs have realized that if you don't have the subsidies coming in, it's really expensive and you won't get your money back until 15, 20 years of generating energy from that solar roof. And it's really no different for large solar plants that are commercial as well. So while solar power is a great source of generating electricity like an, on an RV or when you're going camping, it's essentially free power that is just being generated all the time on top of your vehicle. But when the, the larger those cell sites grow and the more of a need for power you have from solar, the more the cost and the limitations that you are, it's only generated for half a day. And so you need uh, very expensive energy storage and lithium batteries are even more expensive than the uh, solar panels themselves. So really it's not cost effective, at least right now, maybe 50 years down the road, there'll be enough advances to where it becomes cost effective. Right now it's not. So what happened to solar during all of this? Well, solar was responsible for about two and a half, let me see where the biggest peak would be, maybe three, maybe all the way up to 3,000 megawatts. Yeah, 3,000 megawatts. And like, I think I'm being generous there. It's probably closer to two and a half thousand megawatt on a nice sunny day prior to the cold weather. So what happened to solar during that week? Well, the week immediately before the freeze, so it was cooled down to the, to the 40s. Remember, I mentioned it was also cloudy. Cloudy means not a whole lot of wind, and cloudy means not a whole lot of sunlight. So at that point, solar was barely producing 1,000 uh, megawatt of power. So what can you do? You got clouds, you're not generating a whole lot with, with solar power. But during the actual three days of sub-zero temperatures, of sub-freezing temperatures, I should say, it wasn't particularly cloudy. And so we actually got a little bit more solar, ended up peaking at about, about 1,500 uh, megawatt or so. So probably about a 35 to 40% reduction from its optimal capacity. So solar actually did much better than wind turbines as a percentage of its potential power generation and what it actually saw. But it represents such a tiny fraction of total power that it's almost, there's almost no point in talking about it. And that's why I kind of just only mention it at the end after summarizing everything else because solar did better than wind power, but there's so little solar that it really didn't make a huge impact. And now that we're back, now that uh, everything's sort of warm weather and everything's running uh, normal, and this will be the last number of figures I give you guys, I swear, I'm sure I've lost plenty of people with all the numbers and figures I'm spinning out here. But <clears throat> the last numbers I have, which would be from, I guess, uh, yesterday, were that nuclear is back to its normal, producing uh, roughly 5,000 5, megawatts. Coal is running at about 8,000 megawatts because there's just not much need for it. I think they've shut down the plants that need maintenance and they certainly have plenty of overhead to be able to do. Uh, meanwhile, the natural gas plants 
are down to, what are they down to? About 12,000 megawatts. So still the single biggest producer of electricity yesterday in Texas was natural gas, but that is significantly reduced from the peaks. And what is, uh, and solar is, you know, 1500, give or take. So pretty much insignificant. And so what is wind power at? Wind power is right now at just shy of 15,000. So about 14,000 megawatt. So between wind power and natural gas power, they're, they're almost even in terms of the amount of power they're currently producing in Texas. So this is a more typical situation that we would have other than the two weeks of cold weather that we had, one of which actually dipped below freezing. And so I'm not trying to completely say that, oh, all wind power is horrible. Wind power is fine when it works. And it works in warm, sunny days. So if you know that there will occasionally be days which are not sunny and therefore not very windy and days which are cold, which seems to also greatly affect the capabilities of the power generation, then you as a state, Texas, need to plan on having enough other means of power generation available to offset the known drop in availability coming from wind turbines. And that is essentially my thesis, that this was mostly human error. These are events that could absolutely have been predicted. The outputs of all of these systems could absolutely have been predicted based on past years and past, past days of cold weather. There was nothing unusual about this year with one exception. The cold weather lasted for almost two weeks instead of two or three days, which normally happens. And during that two-week cold weather period, three of those days were below freezing. So it is a more extreme version of cold weather. But even in less extreme versions of cold weather that Texas has experienced, you can see a very large drop in the capabilities of wind power. And having that ability to predict the drop in wind power, it should have been absolutely predictable that there is not sufficient alternative power methods, which are mostly going to be natural gas, but also coal. And as I've mentioned, I think on my In the Dark podcast, Texas right now is down to, I guess, right around 12,000 megawatt of potential coal power, maybe 13,000 megawatt. Just six years ago, Texas was at 37,000 megawatts. So that, that's a over 50% of Texas capabilities to produce electricity using coal have been removed in just six years. That is a very substantial difference. And that difference is absolutely would have been enough to make up for the shortfall of wind power. Had Texas not shut down roughly half of its coal plants the way it did in the last six years, there would have been enough power available to offset the dip in the available electricity production coming from wind power. And none of the freezing temperatures would have affected Texas residents the way that he did with uh, multi-day blackouts. We may have had no blackouts or we may have had a very short blackout or two. And I remember 10 years ago when the last cold front 
with sub-freezing temperatures went through Texas, and I was living in Dallas at that time, there was a 20-minute blackout that happened, and there's just that one. That was it. And I remember complaining about that and talking about how this is ridiculous. I can't believe they weren't managing their electricity better given that they knew this cold front was coming in. So things have gotten way worse in Texas. Texas has gotten rid of over half their coal power plants and increased the reliance on wind power. And unfortunately, what we absolutely know, it is a fact that wind turbines lose capacity at a huge rate when the weather gets cold and especially when it gets down to sub-freezing temperatures. So if Texas doesn't want to have this happen again, and there will be lawsuits to make sure they don't, it has to have alternative means. Now, I don't want to go much longer on this episode. It's already getting long. But the best alternative means of power, the one that is completely unaffected by weather conditions, of course, is nuclear power. And having two nuclear plants, each one with two operational reactors right now, if Texas simply doubled that and we had four nuclear plants and we had eight operational reactors running, then the baseline of power produced could be enough to offset all the coal plants that were shut down during the uh, the last six years, as I mentioned. And it's probably more like seven years. But anyway, in a fairly short period of time, Texas has lost a lot of production of power coming from coal. And if we were increasing both nuclear and wind power to offset that, meet somewhere in the middle, I think that would have been great. And of course, nuclear is the greenest power that you can produce. It generates extremely little waste. And if we use modern nuclear power production capabilities, not the sort of gigantic old school GE or Westinghouse nuclear generators, if we're doing the same thing that a lot of countries are doing right now with a molten salt reactor, then we can have cheaper and safer nuclear power options in Texas and be able to go on a a much more green and environmentally friendly type of electrical generation, which is not burning coal and not burning natural gas anywhere near as much as they are right now, but still providing a a very good base load of power. So anyway, one more item that I want to cover, and because I'm not going to get to any news stories today, I guess the news stories will have to be on the next podcast, but I, I did have one more item I wanted to bring up. And it, it was something that I'd been working on a book for a while, but also something that kind of got brought up on No Agenda Social. And that was a graphic that somebody made that had the uh, sort of the flow coming from the scientific method, which has not been around for over 100 years, and comparing that to the flow. And by flow, I mean like it's a, you know, a charter graph showing different steps that you execute for what I would describe as scientific worship rather than scientific method. And I'm not going to go through all the steps in the scientific method. I will include images of the graphs in the podcast. So if you're running a podcasting 2.0 app, you'll actually be able to see the, the logo of the podcast change from my smiling face to the images that I'm referencing. I also have some links to these images. But so in case you're, you have an older app, then you won't see the icon change. But I do want to run through really quick in the scientific worship method. And because it's only at five steps. And the five steps are this. Step one, don't ask questions. Step two, construct model 
with preconceived ideas. Step three, find data supporting the model. Step four, ignore any data that is not supporting the model. And step five, which we've heard plenty of times before, claim the science is in. And that is your conclusion. So that is a far cry from the real scientific method, but that is uh, sort of a halfway joking, but unfortunately halfway serious description of the scientific worship method that we're seeing and have been seeing for years now as documented on No Agenda by, that, that is the most popular thing that we see in the media. The claim of the science is in is a great trigger to tell you that there is no science involved there whatsoever. Because science is a process, science is something that can be falsified. Science is something that requires you to constantly test and modify your beliefs at all times. There is no such thing as scientific dogma. And when that happens, when people say the science is in, they're talking about religion, not science. They've simply created a religion which they're referring to as science, but ultimately has all the traits of any other religion. And if I wanted to be a little more mean, I would say a cult, not just a religion, because much like cults do, these scientific worshipers, they act in ways to exclude people who don't agree with them, much like cults, and to remove non-believers and shun them and to maximize pain for people that don't agree with them by, oh, I don't know, removing people from platforms like Twitter simply for raising questions. So with that, I think I'll wrap up. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. This is not a special. This is getting back to our normal scheduled programming. But I promise I will cover more actual news stories in the next podcast. Take care. And as always, thanks for joining me. Please do keep in mind that nothing in this podcast represents financial, legal, or medical advice. Music